Karina Manishil is the president of Mad Solar. She began her career in the mailroom at William Morris Endeavor, where she became a talent agent. She represented Scott Miscuddy, known by his stage name Kit Cuddy, and built her career taking talent into new arenas. In 2020, she partnered with Miscuddy and Dennis Cummings to launch Mad Solar, which is backed by Braun Studios. Manishil then went on to executive produce SX, SW, Fan Favorite X, and its sequel, Pearl, directed by Ty West. Manishil is an executive producer on the Netflix animated series directed by Fletcher Moore, Intergalactic, which was created by Kid Cudi and released alongside its album of the same name from Kid Cudi on September 30th. Karina Manishil, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. We're grateful to learn about your creative process and just to be a woman in this business and just how driven and how you've really you know, accelerated your career at such a pace. I believe when you arrived at William Morris Endeavor, it was like a magic moment and, and they didn't know if there were any jobs there. You said, give me a job in the mailroom and I'll take it from there. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It was very much the very Hollywood story of starting within the mailroom and making your way up through the system, which was so enjoyable. And I feel so fortunate that WME was my badge of honor and the place that I called my home. We want to dive into your projects. You're a producer. This is a kind of a vague term for some people. They think producing is about raising money and they don't realize all the different elements. You weren't a producer initially. I mean, you've worn a lot of hats along the way. Okay. I'll give you the full origin story. So right out of college and I went to film school at Chapman and I started reading the mail room at WME and the process within most of these agencies is that you start in the mailroom, you start floating, which means that you essentially temp assist any desk where an assistant is out for an hour, a day, a week, a month, whatever period a desk needs to be covered for. And from there, you start interviewing for agents. And once you end up on your first desk, that's a great first step. And generally how the process moves is that you then move up desk into a coordinator position and off to being an agent. So for me, when I was figuring out my rise, the first desk that I was on was an agent in TV talent. And it was a really interesting moment because it was right at the beat where House of Cards and True Detective came out. So there was this clear delineation that all of a sudden you can binge TV and TV is incredibly chic. And in the same year, Matthew McConaughey was nominated for an Oscar and an Emmy. So there was no differentiation between what the two could look like. So at that point, I decided to stick with the TV talent. And I actually remember the call from HR saying, no, you need to go work for a partner and a board member. Then you can go work for another covering agent in the department. But it just felt like there was a movement happening here and I wanted to be a part of it. So at that point, I, right after working for that second desk, they created a coordinator position for me. And then I was promoted from there. And for the first Gosh, it was six years of my career. Maybe it was five, five to six years of my career. I was a talent agent within WME, which was beautiful. I mean, it was an incredible experience, especially speaking to some of the film school students that might be listening. It did offer all of the things that were promised at starting in an agency, which felt like the graduate school of the film business, a real understanding where you're at the center. So within the agency, you have this opportunity to see the full scope. You could be within music and books and talent and lit and all of the different disciplines that you could participate in. So that was a real gift from WME. And then the other part, which very much led into what I'm doing now, is the proxy to talent and the ability for anybody outside to take your phone calls. So I felt like within the structure of that building, I was able to identify what are the things that I'm passionate about, which happen to be 
the movement of talent from one arena into a new one. So Kit Cuddy, we'll call Scott, because that's what he'd want you to call him too, was the perfect example of that. And that really is what led to the movement into the producing side. Yeah, you identify something that's really so important. It's not to limit yourself from the beginning because you have an idea of what you might be good at, but you're not really sure until you, as you say, you get to know the musical talent or you get to maybe introduce them to sides of their potential as well. So just tell us a little bit about your relationship with Scott or Kid Cudi. Oh, it's my favorite thing to talk about. (laughs) You start early with my favorite subject. Scott is A, the most beautiful, kind, good-hearted man but also he's brilliant he's a generator of ideas i feel like by being next to him your role is to take all of these concepts that he's crafting and ideating and bring them to fruition so it's a really beautiful gift where you feel like you're paired with an artist who is the source of so much scott was also really important to me in a lot of ways from our very beginning so when i started representing scott was october 2016 and he was already a client of the agency on the music side and i wanted to work with him and raise my hand and was invited to the group and at that point it was right before he went to rehab for depression nobody at wme had his phone number and everything went through his manager and right when he came out of that it felt like scott and i found each other at this kismet moment where he was in a place where he was ready for life to really begin again and find happiness and all of it. And I was in a place where I was starting my career and looking for that kind of soulmate in the business. And we just linked into one another. And quickly after that, shared his phone number. And I swear we've spoken almost every day since that. And he was also a major reason in my understanding of why I wanted to move from the agency to producing. Because Scott Scott was one of those people who included you in every part of the process. You were, you know, creating the uh, intergalactic as an example where we were sitting and kicking the idea around together as he was coming up, you know, feel like there's a disconnect between visuals and music. Like, how do I create something new? And we brought in Kenya Barris and he brought in Netflix, and the idea of the animation and all of those steps were coming together to the point that I was sitting in the writer's room. And I remember one day it was in his studio at East West Studios. We were doing a writing session and I was sitting there for hours. And I was thinking to myself, oh my God, if WME knew I was sitting here, they would think you are not doing your job. You should be in here pitching other clients. That client is set, go do more work. But I was, I couldn't leave. I felt like this was the most fulfilling place that I could be. So that transition became so obvious simply because of the involvement that Scott allowed me to have in his creative process. Yeah. And so this is the transitioning from, we were talking about that before about, you know, what is a producer? So it's a fluid role mm-hmm. and it's going back maybe to what producers were in the golden age. And then I know critics <laughs> are very creative, but people don't always have that sense of it. Yeah. Really nurturing and fostering projects from the beginning and just being part of it at every step of the way. That's exactly right. And it's been interesting because Scott is the generator of ideas. So my role has been less the hunt. And looking for external material. Now, granted, we brought some in, but that wasn't the major focus of what the company was. It was more inside out. So there was a lot of how do we, you know, and Scott is genre agnostic and medium agnostic. He could call you one day and say, I want to write a memoir. And another day, let's make a video game. And all of a sudden, you get to work in all of these different arenas simply because his mind is expanded into everything. He's like, I'm making a clothing line. I'll see you in Paris Fashion Week. It really is joyous. There's no limits to what creativity can look like anymore. And speaking of fashion, we should also say we kind of haven't 
fully describe what intergalactic is, but it features <laughs> fashion from, of course, the late Virgil Abloh. And I just to speak about those different parts of the vision, it's a very touching love story and it's a new way of presenting music. Yeah, I'll start a little origin and then I'd love to start with fashion because that came in early. So with Scott, it really started with that. He was recording an album. The label gives him two music videos that he can do and go on to the next. And that process started to become not as creatively fulfilling as what the visuals and he sees music in color. So what the visuals of music meant to him. So he wanted to create a new experience. And that alongside Kenya Barris and ideating what it could be led to Intergalactic, which essentially Scott wrote an original album, which is his 10th studio album, and pieced those songs in before the creation of this love story, which runs 90 minutes from start to finish. And essentially the two parts exist simultaneously. So you've got the album on its own, and then you've got the event, which allows you to hear beats of each piece of music in all of these key beats of Jabari Scott's character and Meadow Jessica Williams' character's love story. To speak to Virgil and the fashion, what was really interesting is when we first started talking about animation, I kid you not, on the first phone call I had with Scott to discuss this, he goes, well, I don't want it to be a cartoon where the characters wear the same thing every day. Like this needs to be about the culture and fashion is a real part of that. And in that concept, and I thought, I'm like, well, why do they have to wear the same outfit every day? I mean, this really feels like an opportunity to do something that you don't tend to see in animation. And Scott, what became really important to him was somebody who specifically was styling these characters. And there was no other person he even considered other than Virgil. And that was one of the very first calls on the project was to ask him to participate. And Virgil, I mean, it was so interesting because it, so much of it must be the breath of his genius and working in all of these different arenas. But he was so deliberate that each style of each character was definitive of what they would wear and who they are. It wasn't, let's just give you the off-white runway, you pick every piece, and that's the end of it. It was so tailor-made. So I feel like that component of it was a true gift and a true innovation between two dear friends to create something that felt very new as far as what clothing could look like in television and what animation could look like in fashion. And at the same time as being metaphoric and showing you what the music feels like, the, a visual. Yeah. Tell us what intergalactic is, because some of these pieces just uh, bringing together souls. Yeah. So intergalactic tells the story of a Black modern love story in New York City. It's simple in its core. So it tells the story of Jabari, who's a character, graffiti artist in New York City, and Cosmic Comics has decided to option his character and turn it into a comic book. So he's at this point in his life where he's moving into the loft apartment of his dreams. Everything seems to be working for him when he meets Meadow, who's his neighbor, and she's this amazing woman, photographer, coolest cat on the planet. And essentially this show follows their meet cute and their love story and the will they won't they of if they'll end up together. It's a very beautiful, it's more than that, a concept album, but I like to see you were there in the beginning of when streaming was really getting popular and that, that maybe this will spur a generation of these kind of creative collaborations. Actually, we hope so. It was such a beautiful process. Throughout it, it felt like we were doing something new and different. And then what really hit home is that there was something so new about the colors, fashion, the music, the sounds, the visuals, the pinks and purples, even flesh mold and the way that he animated it harkened back to hand-drawn animation where instead of 
you know, traditional 3D animation of today where you've got your arm up and then you draw the arm down and the computer generates a smooth move from top to bottom. So everything looks perfect. With Intergalactic, it was really important to him to make sure each frame was hand-drawn. So every move was a deliberate choice by an artist and a team of artists around the world. So there's something very warm in its aesthetic. But what's so interesting is that the love story is very nostalgic. It, it just harkens back to what a good romance feels like. And what was interesting watching it for the first time was I didn't realize how much I missed seeing that from the U.S., we have uh, Korean dramas become my go-to to watch any, <laughs> any bit of romance this day. This feeling of, I just want these two to end up together. And it seems like the perfect marriage was really, it felt, it just felt like the zhuzh that we've been missing in programming. And so much great acting voice talent as well. <laughs> You've mentioned also that Timothy Chalamet is in, and just a great cast that have got behind this. So you're very good at, I don't know if that's also part of your role, <laughs> casting director. Well, I can tell you all about that. What was interesting too in the casting, all uh, the inclusion of Virgil, all uh, you know, Scott going to Brian Donnelly cause and asking to include his art pieces because it was so central to New York City and his aesthetic. He also, a lot of the cast were people that he knew. So Timothy Chalamet was one of the first people that he reached out to from their longstanding friendship. And it meant the world to him that Timmy agreed to do this. And then there were really interesting pieces of casting that Scott led, like Ty Dolla Sign playing Kai, which I remember that's even down to the name. He was Kai because Scott always thought of Ty when they were creating the character. And I remember having a conversation of, you know, Scott just knowing that this was Ty. And we're like, are there any actors we should think of it? It just ended, no, it's Ty. And this was the first thing in performance of this way that he's ever done. I kid you not, he is my favorite part of the show. I feel like everybody's going to fall in love with this character and what he does. So there was a lot of the Scott. And then the partnership that really was so meaningful to us was Carmen Kuba, our casting director, coming on. And she was a magician at the roles that we needed to really find somebody for, with Jessica Williams kind of being the marquee of what that looked like. Uh, she is truly true talent and so gifted, and she's just amazing. So, so much of the color that existed around Scott's peers, which felt very organic to him, was really colored by Carmen. I can see why you have this close creative partnership with Scott, because, because he's been quite open about being, you know, confessional or you're revealing, you know, vulnerable parts of, you know, and just going through this being open in his creative process and that you're such a positive, you're just full of this positive energy. So I think I can, I can just imagine you in the writer's room or the different creative rooms that you help identify the, the positivity and, and the goodness. I was very moved, and I do want to go on to your other film projects, but I was very moved by Terry film, a man named Scott. He said, everything I make has to help people in some way. And how can I do something yeah. that calls out to the broken and the lost? And Yeah, it's, it's amazing to reference that. I feel like when I even consider Mad Solar and the projects that we should make and what it should stand for, it very much goes to exactly that sentiment. So it sounds incredibly simplistic when I say it. as we were building our slate and going through all of the projects, by medium, genres, all of it, but what's the through line? It felt like the message for each was answering the question of why are you telling this today? Which is like, okay, producer 101, of course, any storyteller should be answering that question. But for us, that felt indicative of exactly what you were talking about, which is Scott as an artist 
from the very beginning has expressed his vulnerabilities because he feels like if I share who I am in this very moment and one person connects and they're no longer alone. So that's worth it. So we feel if we can bring that sense of truism to the projects that we're building on this side, we've really done the service of what Scott stands for. Yeah. And moving on from the, you know, some broken characters, very interesting characters. One of these two films, I want to hear about the genesis. Yeah. You know, it was shot in New Zealand during COVID and it was just a very interesting process there. Pearl and X. Tell us how that came together and uh, really interesting characters. So this was such a fun process. It started really at the genesis of our company where we've been working with Sam Levinson, Kevin Turr, and Ashley Levinson on Harrison Price on a few projects. I reached out to A24, who I knew from the agency and really spoke through what we were doing. And Scott had known Ty from a dinner right after he had put out House of the Devil and Scott had reached out to him and loved his film. And Scott is a horror nut. That's his genre of choice, loves it. And they met. And because of this moment, right, as soon as the script for X was turned in, all A24, Ty, and Little Lamb, Sam Levinson's company, like Scott and Matt Solar. So at the very origin of the script coming in, we were brought into the project and Scott was presented with two roles that he could play. Either two plays and roll, just a role that he chose, or RJ, who was the film director. And when I would write a script, I'm like secretly hoping, oh my God, I hope he chooses the porn star. But is it weird if I wish him to choose the porn star? I'm like, let me just let him read it and hope he chooses the porn star. So we submitted the script to Scott. Scott read it right away, calls me back, and he's like, I want to be Jackson Hole. And I was at this like internal celebration of, I think this is the coolest thing that he could possibly do. And from then, you know, we participated in casting and putting it together. Production began in New Zealand. Scott, it was COVID time, so only two producers were allowed on set. Scott went alongside the very, very core team, basically the cast you saw and the crew just in New Zealand in this farm rural area together shooting the film. And for me, I love this so much because I feel like Ty captured, he's so good at capturing a time period and a feeling and a mood. And with X, he took me straight to 70s. It was cool. The porn world, like there was so much cool that when you get to the second half of the film and you're really experiencing the slasher, it's raucous. It doesn't feel like there was scares without purpose. It was so, you're so in it. So I felt like he had crafted the perfect blend of artistry, 70s, horror, and comedy to create a beautiful movie. And what's really interesting about process-wise in terms of how it leads into Pearl, and this is absurd and only Ty West could be capable of this, but essentially as he's in quarantine, he partners with Mia Goth during the two weeks and writes Pearl sends it to A24 and they say, well, we're here. Why don't we shoot these back to back? A24, to their credit, because this is equally absurd on their side to receive something like this, like, let's do it. So they essentially went from shooting X directly into shooting Pearl and shot the two films back to back. Mia Goth then was playing Maxine, old Pearl and young Pearl, all within the span of a few months in New Zealand, which is just such an extraordinary experience. Yeah. And then it does capture that 70s vibe. And then with Pearl, then it has, I mean, is it me seeing this? And it's just, there's a vibe even also of, it's not the Wizard of Oz. No. It's the setting. You know, there's this setting. Go, Wizard of Oz gone really wrong. No, it's a fantastic way of describing it. It's so interesting because it's, what if Dorothy was psycho? There's something so, so you understand her. A Pearl 
it was interesting because Pearl and X were so different. X, you felt the ensemble. There was, you know, the cool of the 70s and of what these characters and who they are and what they're doing. With Pearl, I really feel like you were understanding a performance piece with Mia as this beacon, North Star, extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary actors at the center that had reminded me of Faye Dunaway at points. Like she was so unbelievably excellent because and you're watching her journey knowing that she's going to unravel and why this is and what really struck me about pearl i wonder if this line stuck out to you is the part where pearl is talking to her mother and her mother tells her you know you go in and when you fail and you will i want you to remember the feeling of that because that's the feeling every time i look at you and that line like took me to core and it blew me away that i maybe this is reserved to a lot of women that i know I feel like this is something that feels a little universal. Understood. The one thing a daughter wants more than anything is her mother's love. Her father, it's okay. But the mother, there's something that you just need the acceptance and approval from your mother to feel complete. And Ty saw that. And I feel like because of that, you're watching her murder, the love interest, the mother, the father, and then going into her dance audition. And you're still rooting for her to win. It was so so well nuanced and so smartly laid out. I really give them so much credit and Mia so much credit on the thought processes about how we're going to execute the love of a woman that you know is going to become a monster. It's weird how we can ice, I mean, on, on film, how we can ice it. Like we still want, we want them to succeed because we understand where some of those choices came from. I guess it's lovely to see it worked yeah. out by someone else failing or making those choices in our play. That's funny. Just as a fine, I was speaking to her, uh, Mia's grandfather the other day, Lee Jaffe. You know, he traveled around the world with Basquiat and was also performing with Bob Marley. And anyway, so it was just an interesting... Oh, interesting. Um, and I love that they use the opportunity, if you want to say the opportunity of COVID, but some of us who found the good places that we could, that you had this kind of not rehearsal process, you have this finished movie, you're so much in character, you're on set and there's so much, you could do something while you're here. And it, it made the performance that much deeper because it wasn't like starting from scratch. They were already in it. And there are also really interesting echoes from the COVID that we all lived through to the previous global pandemic a hundred years earlier. No, you're a hundred percent right. They had the house, they had the character, they had the mannerisms. There's something, you know, it's an experience that feels so unique to that moment and certainly unique to Ty and his execution of an idea so quickly. But it felt a little for them like we're in summer boot camp and it's almost like you're in an acting class where you're together in this one space and you don't leave it. Very unique, very unique to COVID. Yeah, exactly. A little bit like theater too. You can't help but be, you know, you don't know once, I guess people are going back to their trailers or whatever, but you, how far can you go? And so it's nice. And he caught something special. And I wonder, it's nice. It's the kind of ensemble that you get with television shows as well, where you get into this family spirit. And one of my earliest jobs was working at the end of his life, the producer, Alexander Salkind, who, you know, that they made Superman, but the way they did it, 
they didn't tell the actors they were in two movies. <laughs> so that was a little bit of a problem. <laughs> so oh my the actors God. They're in two movies. <laughs> Instead of like, all these pages are coming at us every day. There's another movie <laughs> being made. <laughs> so it's a oh great my God. economy, but it's always good to tell the cast, I think. Oh, for God. Yeah, I, I think the forewarning is not a bad idea. That is so fascinating. Yeah, but it, it makes sense in terms of economies and now, especially the way filmmaking is, is as well. You have to, I believe that those films were, did I read this right? Because it was a million for the budget. Is that correct? More than that. It was about 13 for the two. So the first was around eight and then they kicked in five additional for Pearl, which they essentially married the budget between the two films. So it wasn't delineated that deliberately in the final product, but yeah, total for the two films was 13. It's amazing that what one can do and the quality that one can get, and it it looks much more, you know, (laughs) richly uh, (laughs) produced and quite powerful. So uh, these are the projects that you're working on and you're always working on many projects, a lot of plate spinning. Oh, absolutely. There's so much that we're developing, which is a great marriage of the Scott created and then bringing in materials. So in terms of things that Scott's developing, I kid you not, he called me one day and said, hey, we're going to, let's write a pilot. And within a week, the process of how he writes now is we literally sit on the phone and he tells me top of his head, everything that happens in pages and scenes and, and dialogue and all of it. And I quickly type it in notes, convert it to script, send him the pages, we look it over and then move over to the next. So within a week, he wrote this pilot that now we're in negotiations on that would be an opportunity for him to star as a comedy. So this is just a typical Scott. All that tie does things that sound absurd. Scott also pulls off the absurd as well. And there's a plethora of other projects and other arenas. Like I mentioned, we're working on a video game. We're working on a comic book. There's a few different movies that Scott has ideated and created that we're getting into negotiations on and starting to set up. So there's all of that. And then also in terms of projects that we brought in, there's been some really interesting creators that we've come to work with. One is this author, Brandon Taylor, who created this novel, which was his debut novel called Real Life. And he is, I found the novel to be utterly breathtaking. He follows this Black man in a Midwestern school, other Black people in his program study, taking a PhD program. And it follows very slice of life this one weekend of him as he's, fatigued with the program and not finding happiness inside of it, but then feel shackled because if he doesn't pursue it, what's left for him, what does he go home and what is the career path? Like what does life look like? So he's even shackled by his own success and also begins a relationship with a straight student who comes on to him and it follows their relationship over the course of a weekend. And this was all based on Brandon's own experiences in a PhD program. And he had chosen to leave and pursue writing, which turns out was the beautiful, such a fulfilling and correct move. And we hope the same things for Wallace, the protagonist of the story that people find its happiness. But this film is something that Brandon is adapting himself that Scott will star in. So we're working on this piece. Also, in terms of another artist that we brought into the fold, there's this incredibly, incredibly talented artist, Jaron Braxton, who is 27 years old from Indiana and basically wanted to start making music when he was young and wanted to create cool music videos and self-taught himself animation. His animation erupted and he created a very distinct style that pulled from 2000s video game aesthetics, very cubism, abstract, like hype cool and his career took off where he was won Sundance with his first film and continued on the kind of film trajectory but also started working in 
the culture space and he worked on Virgil's show. His artwork was featured in Christie's first NFT auction with Takashi Murakami. And he's become talked about in this space. And he had an idea for his directorial debut, which now we're putting together alongside Ron and our partner, Alex Lepovici. So the kind of the next wave is very wide, a lot of different projects and a lot of different spheres. And a lot of it, all intergalactic, bringing Scott's peers into the fold. So we have a project with Jaden Smith. We're talking to Sam Levinson about more. I mean, it's that circle of recurrence that's definitely continued with what is plated out to be. It's very renaissance. It's very open <laughs> and about reinventing things. So I'm brought back to some of these questions that were in the film, Man Called Scott. You know, how can I push it? How can I give people something I haven't heard before? And I guess those are some questions that you're asking yourself as you decide which projects to take on. Oh, it's a hundred percent true. I feel like that's in Scott's DNA. So it became in our DNA. And I feel, you know, Scott had tweeted out, which has been really warming to a lot of people, that Intergalactic was the greatest piece he's ever created. This is the thing he's most proud of. And I think it's really to your point, because it felt, Scott feels that this was an opportunity to create that new moment for his audience, where they're going to get to experience something that they've never had the opportunity to before, because it feels so new. So that bringing that kind of bar, which is certainly a deliberate one to the projects that we're doing is our hope to continue to live up to. This discussion has been regarding the creative process for artists as largely collaborative spaces where people work as a unit, yet still with individual agency, and ultimately all bring their ideas to the table that is the mitochondria of music creation or any other art form. Discussions regarding the field of music technology often circulate where music could be going, but Oftentimes I hear other artists feel discouraged because everything has already been done, so how can we create anything new? I think the struggle there is 40% surrendering oneself to collaboration, 40% fighting the idea that this new thing is something that has to be marketable, and 20% actually coming up with those new sounds. But on this note of collaboration, this is something that is so crucial to art, and some of the most pivotal musicians in the industry talk about how their most important step in the creative process is asking their colleagues for honest, critical feedback. It seems obvious, but I think a lot of us still miss out on that part of the process because we want that control. This collaboration, though, is what unlocks the 40% of creating new things that people haven't heard or seen or considered on the path to doing the never-before-done in an art industry. On the note of marketability, we must consider this confidence factor. A significant portion of artists do what they do not only for themselves, but in seeking a connection or a desire to provide a connection to the consumers of that art. We want people to like it. I think we can combat this by getting the newness down and being willing to liberate ourselves and creating new things and not staying attached to one lane. If we can do this, we can figure out a way to market it to people if that's what we ultimately want. Kid Cudi-san, for example, like any other artist, is not one that's going to appeal to everyone, but he and his colleagues over the past few years have pioneered this new sound, leading a broad spectrum of genres and artists. And it's become so revolutionary because it's a very transformative, spacey synth sound, which together create this intensely immersive and ethereal experience music, as opposed to something you can just dance to. It's something that you can savor every little element of for this total euphoria. But that was only made possible by Kid Cudi and his colleagues willingness to surrender themselves 
to working collaboratively and to making sounds that no one has ever heard and might even not be attracted to. Some of the artists in the industry today, like Cuddy, Mike Dean, Osavano Shake, and some songs by Ye, I sometimes compare to a Pink Floyd type sound, but make it modern. The kind of experience I have as a listener is comparable to when I listen to a Dark Side of the Moon type album. And the stories they tell are ones that generally resonate with people. Being a beautiful artist, but lonely undercover and channeling that into their music is so crucial to their sound. We're all the protagonists of our own stories and have struggles that can feel really isolating. But indulging in any art form, whether consuming or making, watching movies, listening to music, painting, writing, reading, really whatever it is, we identify with the main feeler of the story, which is usually somehow related to the artist. I think we can all appreciate Manashil as a key player in the latest movement as new sound and crossroads between multiple mediums. Kid Cudi is among the biggest names in the industry, but he also plays a huge role in the foundation of so many up-and-coming artist sounds, particularly in regards to what he's produced with Ye, Mike Dean, and yourself, solely because of how experimental these sounds can be. So what's your take on using experimental sounds, and how do you make them appealing to more people? Gosh, this is Scott's specialty. You know, I find myself, it's very similar to your question. I find myself often being the fan when it comes to him and music because Scott has a degree of confidence about his choices and the newness that I feel you, you either have that or you don't. And it's something that I feel like I get experienced through him because there's choices that he will make that I could never even think of. And I'll, I'll give you a great example. So when he was recording the song for The Harder They Fall with James Daniel and Jay-Z came on to collaborate after, I was fortunate enough to sit in the studio with him as they were recording it. And I kid you not, they did it in one night. James had wanted it to sound. And the first performances Scott did were very along the lines of what you would assume how the song would move. It was like very boisterous and masculine and like hit all of those notes. And I was just like, okay, this is what this should sound like. And to me, I'm like, perfect, done. You got it. Like, this is what I'd imagine the song would be. And then Scott goes, I want to change it. You know, I want to try something. And he tries something and it was so different and it was so not boisterous. It was so, as James describes it, Scott lives in between the notes. So the things that you would expect, he lives right in the center, which is why his music is so interesting. And that ended up being what they use for The Harder They Fall. And that to me, it's like only Scott, only Scott could sit there and say, the clarity of what this is supposed to be is not what it's going to be. So it's really interesting that you picked up on, you know, kind of the nuance and creativity with his choices because it's so indicative of the way that he hears sound. Yeah, I mean, I've been learning a lot about how experimental sounds are really the only way at this point or one of the only ways at this point that you can create new sounds in the music industry. And I really appreciate what you and Scott and your other colleagues have been doing in regards to that because... It's very rare to find people who are actually creating these new sounds because, you know, we've been hearing the same sounds for the past 20 years or more since electronic music has really, really been um, more popular and more accessible for people to mess around with. So what are the key differences between music for film and radio music? And how does your film music production process go? 
That is also a fantastic question. So I was having a conversation with Scott about what music is right now. It used to be the most like, free form of expression. We consider what the origin was. And now is majority reserved just first. So a lot of classic music in its biggest sense is created for a purpose. So there's something deliberate about the, what it's supposed to sound like. And then we look at an artist in music, DJ Kikadi at his origin, and he was able to come up with his own sound. There was a sense of freedom at the very beginning of the process. However, now what comes that once you've heard an artist, heard their sound, there's an expectation of repetition. Like, I know what they're supposed to sound like, and that's what I want to hear. So there's a little bit of uh, a knee jerk when things change too much. So what was really interesting for us on the film side is in the creative process of Intergalactic, which is a love story, Scott bought a write a love album, which if you heard just on its own, Kid Cudi puts out a love album, you're like, what? That was not, that wasn't what I expected from Kid Cudi. He's just to do all love songs. But because of Intergalactic, he was liberated by a project to do something that ended up being unexpected. So I think, you know, process-wise in terms of what does Scott do, sits in the studio, ID, it's all of it. All of those things are still organic to both, but Interestingly, the creativity for a project gave him a little bit more looseness than what the expectations are of Kit Cudi. And I was wondering, when you're writing for film, I mean, people have told me who are screenwriters or showrunners and things like that, it's, you know, a pairing away process. You don't say it all. And obviously you leave that space for the imagination because you're filling it out visually. And I don't really know how that does affect the songwriting process. Or could there be like alternate versions? Because when you have the visuals, do you need all of those elements explained in song? I think in our process, the placement of the songs were very deliberate because Scott in the origin with Intergalactic specifically had three songs written. It was Do What I Want, which he knew was going to be the guys being guys. It was Angel, which he knew it would be when Jabari meets Meadow. And it was Willing to Trust, which he knew would be their love song, like the lovers coming together. And as he was going through the creation of what the story was going to be, he identified the other beats that he was going to need music. It's like, okay, when Jabari and Meadow are on the rocks, we need a song. Or all of these different points where it became very specific that music needed to be layered. So in our situation... It was maybe even a little more deliberate where you knew the music had to fit a mood and had to fit a moment. And then the storytelling started to fit the music. So and I guess this is also the beauty of animation is that things could get trippy and move into space and get incredibly colorful and fluid when you're in these moments of music because the sonic experience moves the visual one. I suppose it's a little bit different for project, but the music loosen the visuals and the visuals loosen the music. And I think for others, they have to, if they haven't seen it, they'll have to see it. Yeah, to explain I I, but it's, it's hard when something is in, on the audio level so strong artistically and visually so strong that you can't piece it together yet. The analysis you just yeah. experienced. You know, it, it was so interesting. Jessica was explaining, she goes, her like ideal version of watching intergalactic i think she said it was hot cheetos water nighttime all dark big screen and just surrendering to the experience and the word surrender really struck with me because i feel like that is ideally what intergalactic feels like is this opportunity to surrender both visually and sonically and just experience both in tandem yeah and on the same note of surrendering what's your biggest tip on collaborating with other artists and how do you move past differences in taste to create something that neither of you or none of you could have done alone 
I feel very fortunate in the sense that partnering with Scott, I felt like I found, again, my soulmate when it came to creativity. So our tastes are very aligned. If anything, the challenges more are his completely open imagination in all different arenas. So all of a sudden you are learning new things. I mean, animation was not something we delved into either of us until Intergalactic came together. So it was a new medium. And then as we were putting together the merch cap Intergalactic with Netflix, all of a sudden it's like, okay, now we're making merch and that's new. And now he wants to do a comic book. And I'm like, okay, I'm learning the comic book business. Like this is fascinating. So I feel alongside my partner, it's been a little bit more it's a challenge, but it's also a blessing. And it's, it's the good stuff is the kind of the openness of understanding how the world works in a broader sense and what really becomes possible. I think in terms of creative challenges and partnering, I know this sounds so uh, glass half full optimistic, but we've been really fortunate that we haven't come to any challenges in terms of butting heads with any of the artists that we've worked with. And maybe that is a completely blessed experience and knock on wood, like how did that happen for so long up until this point? But it really has been something of true collaboration with each of the partners on our projects. It's interesting how you can tune in to different people's wavelengths, I guess, to overkill the metaphors. But it's, <laughs> I imagine, a kind of a spiritual process where you almost, it's a mind meld. And it's mysterious how that happens, especially also on deadline and all those things. It's such a good point. And I guess this is a really interesting kind of comp between Origin Kikadi and where he is now. And it speaks to that collaboration is that when Scott described what he does in music, and he has collaborators, which of course, everything that he does, but he acknowledges the buck starts and stops with him. He has to, I'm ready to make a song. I'm writing the words for a song. I know the song is done. And there are people who partner with him throughout the process, but there's a lot of incumbent on him in order for that to come together. And in the process of film and TV and all of these other arenas, one of the pieces he was so excited about is that it wasn't all on him. So with Intergalactic as an example, he had the idea and then Kenny Barris comes into the fray and then we sell it to Netflix and they're in the fray. And then we need to hire our showrunners, Ian Adelman and Maurice Williams come to the fray. And then we need our animation director, Fletch Mules comes in and then that opens 350 animators all over the world in this expansive team, then purple comes and pause and all of these people who become the cast, a part of Intergalactic. And what was so moving was when we went into Netflix to the theater to screen the finished product for the first time, we're sitting there and at the end of it, Scott was crying. And I looked over, it made me cry, low key, but Scott was crying and he said, this completely blows my mind because this is the first time I had a vision up here in my head and then had to trust all 300 plus people all around the world working in different time zones from different places and each of them putting a hand to it and seeing exactly that vision and then watching the product and it is the best version of anything I could have ever possibly had in my head. So to us, that's the purest, most beautiful, most, uh, again, how fortunate that every hand was moving in tandem and moving in lockstep and all of it. But that was the beauty of collaboration is this opportunity for a small vision to touch so many hands and become the big vision. It really inspires us as we look at the complications of so many things where we can't achieve politically or to bring it into another realm or when you think about climate change or all these things that they seem, you know, impossible. But is to see the absence of ego, to see people coming together for a collective vision like that shows us that maybe we can do that in other realms. And 
our current challenges. So as you think about the future and the importance of the arts, teachers and collaborators that have been important to you, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? You know what? In my career, I felt like one of my many blessings, first is family, so we'll put that aside, but one of my many blessings coming up was I felt like I just had people knocking me into the right straight line. You know, whether it was speaking to Chapman, my one of my last professors there, Harry Upland, who made it so definitively clear that an agency was a path for me, to ending up at WME, to working for Andrew White's and TV Talent, and having these moments that weren't in advance all thought out. There wasn't some grand master plan that TV is going to change into this moment and I'm going to be there and all, and then I'm going to meet Kip Cuddy and all of these things are going to happen. It just became those bumps that people just knock you into the straight line. And I suppose if I had any guidance, just be open to those mentors and to those little shifts and those little knocks and take the ride and enjoy it. Uh, because there's something really beautiful about the people around you who have your best interests at heart. And when you find those people, just the places that you can end up can be so much bigger than what your expectations would have been. As you think from when you started, so many things have changed in terms of greater opportunities for women in the media and also in terms of just the plethora of television shows that are now, you know, more inclusive. I mean, some of this is just in the last few years. So as you reflect on that, you have some advice for women and people of color who are entering the industry. I just feel go for it. I guess I'll give a personal example. So I'm Iraqi, Iranian, Jewish. So I remember growing up where the movie that felt most reflective of our family was My Big Fat Greek Wedding, which it's great. They're not the same, but it was so close. Talking about the lamb and we have Nick, 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 Nicky and my family, surely, 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 Saul. And there was just, it felt like, oh my God, this feels like my family like, seen that. And the second theory part of that was Rami and seeing Rami Youssef, who's Egyptian, New York, and Iraqi, LA Jew. He's Muslim. It's like, it's not a, like for like, but there was so much. It was like, that feels like us. So I feel my guidance would be go for it because even, you know, I, I feel like I've had these moments within the business, but seeing Rami felt like content is renewed. All of a sudden, there's a whole new world that's open simply because he was wanting to tell his story. And I would love to see a million more opportunities of that. And I would love to be involved in fostering opportunities like that. And I found it to be so inspiring to see content like that. So that, and maybe just to say, yes, go all in. But my pride would be, and my appreciation would be to see more opportunities. Um, creators that moved me in the same way that those two experiences felt reflective of who I am. Well, you're an example to others in the same way they have been to you. And it's very inspiring. So thank you, Karina Manashil, for sharing your insights into film, music, and the arts, and bringing to the screen human stories full of complexity, humor, and strong female characters that help us understand what it means to love and survive in today's world. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you so much for having me. It was utterly joyous. So thank you. Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Yan Mulshaski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Mira Patla with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Mira Patla. Digital Media Coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. 
We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.